This is Scott Jens. Welcome to Sandbox Stories. Hello, welcome to the Sandbox Story, which is an interview with Dr. Eric Boz and Dr. Robert Steinmetz. Eric and Bob, welcome to Sandbox Stories. Thanks for having us, Scott. Happy to be here. Yeah, thanks so much, Scott. Yeah, it's a pleasure. You guys are longtime friends. This is a Sandbox Stories first. You guys will be happy to know that you're breaking ground and have two guests at the same time. The good news is that I know your business partners and you know how to play off of each other. The bad news is, is that once Eric starts talking about Bandcamp, we're not going to get Bob to get a word in edgewise. So, um, Eric, let's just get right to it. What's the highlight of the Bandcamp story? There's actually no Bandcamp story. That was that was a uh, a metaphor for Bob. He he is always happy when there's a referee available to uh, cut off my airtime because he's always he's always concerned that he's not going to have any left when I when I get done talking. So, it's uh. His words tend to be fewer and more powerful. Mine tend to be uh, a little bit more extrapolated. <laughs> All right. So, Bob, you get to talk about what it's like to be a Bear fan in a family that has a bunch of Packer fans. Yeah, it's a, it's a mixed marriage, Scott. It's uh, not a lot of fun for the last uh, two decades. So, uh, you know, unfortunately, you know, I'm a longtime Bear fan. Uh, owned a 1966 Cadillac Curse that was devoted to supporting the Bears and, uh, it had a picture of a bear punching Brett Favre in the face on the hood. And unfortunately, it met its demise in, a, in an accident last year while it was parked on the side of the road. But uh, it was kind of a metaphor of the season that was to come for uh, Trubisky and the Bears. So, but it, it's been rough. My, my wife um, is from Green Bay, and uh, her father is on the board of the Packers. And it happens to be my most hated uh, professional franchise in sports. Uh, but you can't deny it. The people are incredible. My father-in-law is an amazing guy. and Unfortunately, he wrote my little guy into being a fan, and I only got to get my older boy as a Bears fan. So it's it's definitely mixed for sure. That's a great story. Um, what was it like growing up in the Steinmetz household? Uh, you, you know, Scott, it was. I grew up on the south side of Chicago, uh, very blue collar. Uh, my uh, dad worked for the Chicago Transit Authority, and my mom was a parochial school teacher. Uh, they both worked two part-time jobs uh, to make ends meet, and um, we never wanted for our, anything. We, we always had what they had, but hard work was instilled at us at a, at a young age, um, and there there was nothing you could do um, but help to just watch how hard they worked for us. My dad was working, delivering pizzas. Uh, he also worked uh, for an armored car company, cashing checks in, in neighborhoods that didn't have access to banks uh, when I was growing up, and my mom was teaching calligraphy, uh, which is an, an art form with, um, you know, professional cursive and doing wedding invitations. And then she also worked in the evenings as a waitress. So uh, at an Irish pub um, right down the street from the school that she taught at. So uh, we grew up with a lot of hard work uh, in our family. It was still at us at a young age. My brother and sister um, are very tight and it was a small house and uh, great memories growing up. That's awesome. And there are educators in your family also. Uh, Eric, tell us about your family. 
That's correct. So I grew up surrounded by education. My mom was a high school teacher and dad was an elementary school principal. And my, my sister, who's my only sibling, uh, she's also a, a third grade teacher out in Charlotte, North Carolina. And so it was, it was definitely, we, we grew up entrenched in education. Our parents often found out that we were in trouble before we knew we were in trouble. Um, there certainly were some instances where my mom knew that I was getting detention in high school before I learned that I was getting detention. Uh, and so that was always, always something I had to be cognizant of that, you know, the only set of eyes watching were not just my teacher and principal, but uh, also my parental teacher and principal. Um, so it's uh, definitely something that was ingrained in me from the very beginning and no doubt helped kind of forge the path that, that I've taken in education uh, throughout my optometric career as well. Now, you had a pretty typical path to optometry as optometrists go, right? Bad eyesight, a great optometrist that gave you good sight. But you also had a grandfather that you really had a bad vision experiences. Tell us a little bit about that. And did it lead you to appreciate low vision services more because of his experience? It definitely did. And it, it, it's interesting how my impression of what actually happened and what he endured with having visual deficits has evolved over time. You know, as a kid, I just knew that, you know, he had gone blind in one eye. And certainly at the time, maybe my parents told me it was a retinal detachment or otherwise, but probably didn't mean much to me when I was, you know, 10 years old. And I knew that he was slowly losing vision in the other eye as well. And you'd never know it. I mean, the guy just had an incredible personality. He actually just passed away a couple of years ago at the age of 98. And even at that time, when he had gotten to a point where he had little to no vision left, other than the fact that he wasn't completely sure of his environment, you know, in terms of navigating, his ability to facilitate conversation and his memory, I mean, they, they were just incredible. What I found most interesting is as, as time evolved and I became more educated and went through undergrad and then ultimately got to optometry school, I started asking more questions about that story, like, okay, well, you lost your vision back when, but what really happened? And as the story goes, he he had severe flashes and floaters on a, it was either a Thursday or a Friday. It was a holiday weekend. He called in uh, to his doctor and told him, and the doctor said, just wait until, uh, wait until Monday and come in. And by the time he had come in, complete loss of vision. And, you know, knowing what we know now as optometrists, uh, certainly one, that'd be uh, a litigation and waiting. But two, you know, it's just disheartening to to know that something could have been done. And things really came full circle for me uh, when I began working in a setting where I was surrounded by low vision providers and got to learn more about that. And I mean, by this time, he would have been in his 80s and had never had access to or utilized the CCTV or anything. And so that was a great honor to be able to give him his first CCTV and it, it changed his daily life overnight. He was suddenly able to read mail. He was able to read newspaper clippings. He was able to go through, you know, old clippings of my dad when he was an athlete. And so it, it really just gave me a profound appreciation for, you know, vision and sight in and of itself, but also just what he went through and how he adapted really with not a lot of tools being given to him along the way. He just kind of figured it out himself and uh, definitely was something that inspired me. And, and Bob, you had optometry in your family. You had an uncle uh, who was an optometrist, and you said that really drove you. Can you tell us about him? 
Absolutely. Uh, you know, my uncle was kind of a father figure uh, to both uh, my brother, my sister and I. And uh, growing up, we spent a lot of time with him. And uh, I was fortunate enough to be able to move his office when he went from a smaller office into a bigger location. And uh, just a very gregarious guy. He was always thinking outside the box. He was a, a true innovator. And when I was moving all the equipment, I was fascinated by the equipment that he had there. But he was actually moving into a bigger office. And eventually down the road, um, he developed um, actually a kind of a software system with another partner to help to order frames and lenses online and didn't have the programming background behind it. But that was just kind of one of his ideas and set up that site ahead of time. And then he turned around and uh, actually became the first optometrist to actually own a laser inside of his own private practice uh, in the Midwest, where he actually hired an ophthalmologist to come in and do LASIK surgery in its heyday in the early 90s, in the late 90s and the early 2000s. So um, he was thinking outside the box before anyone was doing it. He was a huge risk taker. Uh, so I, I learned a lot from him because uh, I was a huge risk taker myself. I had nothing to lose. And, uh, but just an incredible guy. And uh, I owe him, you know, everything from, you know, pointing me in the direction of optometry to also teaching me the importance of political action. Is he still in practice? He's still in practice. He's nearing nearing retirement, uh, fortunately, to spend more time with his children and uh, his grandchildren. And uh, that was also one of the things that drove me uh, to optometry. I saw how much time he spent with his family and how much time we got to spend with him. Uh, and that was one of the reasons I liked this freedom and this lifestyle was to be able to do that. So he's looking forward to it. All right. Well, here. let's shift over to business. I want to first talk about the separate lives you both spent in optometry because the real part of the story that I love here is we're going to cover later is how your partners in a business that serves ODs. But let's go with you first, Eric. You were burned early in your career. You had this plan to buy a practice and you made an offer and it was turned down. And how did that drive the next part of your career? Yeah, it was a, it was an experience that, you know, has become all too familiar for our clients that we work with with eye care advisors. I finished my residency, I got a full-time associate position. And one of my one of my mentors and friends, Nick Opitz, had said as I was looking for jobs, he said, "I promise you, your first job will not be your last. So you know, don't don't hang your hat on the fact that this has to be the perfect fit for you." Um, despite his words of wisdom, I convinced myself I had found the perfect fit, and I went into this position. Uh, it was a unique scenario where I was able to do a lot of the heavy lifting as the associate. I was able to get involved on the optical side involved on the lab side, involved with the staff. So I, I really got uh, hands-on day-to-day training as a business owner without the risk of you know, having any skin in the game. And so I, I had multiple discussions with the owner over time, was under the impression that I had the opportunity to purchase this practice. And so I went through, went through the steps of getting a formal appraisal, paying for a formal appraisal, putting together an offer, and sat down to present my offer thinking, you know, I'm going to wake up tomorrow morning and be on my path to business ownership. And essentially, the response was, you know, something along the lines of, I'm not really ready to sell at this time, or, you know, the, the number's just not where I need it to be. And I was completely dejected. I, I drove home that day and uh, a friend of mine was doing his residency that year. So he was living with me and I, I came home and, you know, stormed in the door and I'll, probably, I'll tell a different version of the story here based on compared to what was probably really said that night. But I basically said, let's just do this ourselves. And literally the next day, 
we started the research, uh, talked to Bob, talked to others. Bob had cold started and successfully um, built his practice at that point and started the wheels in motion. And, and that became the, the process for me. And I, I still remember uh, something else that we always deal with often with our clients, too, is, you know, the telling of your employer. And there was we were on the second floor of a bank building and the third floor was uh, had not been built out. So it was, you know, complete open rafters, wires hanging. And I'd be sneaking up there five, six times a day talking to the bank and talking to frame vendors and equipment vendors and, you know, disappearing for five, 10 minutes at a time with the staff wondering, you know, where are you going? I don't know. I don't know what they thought I was doing, but, uh, you know, the day finally came and I and I told him and I said, you know, I'm planning on opening my practice. And, you know, essentially we're opening the doors in like a month. Well, it had been, you know, a seven, eight month process to that point already. So it was it was a bit of a covert operation, but certainly ended well and got me to where I am today. And as with most things, Bob and I both firmly believe that things do happen for a reason, whether it's locations or practice opportunities. Looking back, I am so thankful that that opportunity did not go through. You know, it was it was a 40 mile uh, commute from the city and, you know, just a complete it would have been a completely different life shift for me moving forward compared to uh, the path that I'm on currently. That's an awesome one. Bob, I'm going to try to retell some pieces of your story and then get to an emotion of your story. So you start your optometric education and you're immediately frustrated that the scope of practice you're learning about is not even going to be allowed to practice when you get into practice in your home state. And you're thinking about going to med school. But instead, you double down. You say, all right, I'm going to do this and I'm going to make a difference. You become head of the student association and then you get into practice and you immediately become an optometry volunteer. What does that story tell us about the importance of driving the profession as a volunteer? You know, I think, you know, we stand on the shoulders of giants in private practice that have elevated the profession to this level. If you look on the walls, I think of most optometric institutions, you know, I was fortunate to serve on the Illinois College of Optometry Board of Trustees for a time. And you walk by the donation plaque every day and it's just list of list of private practitioners that have really shaped, you know, what we were able to learn today. I'll never forget giving a presentation in school about this group of, you know, ODs that started to um, practice uh, laser uh, refractive correction up in the state just to the north of us uh, by interpreting their law. I don't know who you're talking about. It was published in Optometry News. Yeah, I know you don't know. So, um, but I was always fascinated by just the passion of individuals to drive the profession forward. And I was fortunate to meet a lot of those individuals and mentors pretty early in my career, including my uncle, who was very politically active, Steve Steinmetz at the time, and also Pete Kehoe and Pam Lowe and Bob Brennard and and Mike Horseman, who's the president, uh, executive director of the IOA at the time. And I got to spend a lot of time in Washington and down on Capitol Hill in Springfield and realized that this is a state legislative profession. Um, if we're not going to do it, and this is our generation that is going to take advantage of these, these procedures and these oral medications that we didn't have that we were able to pass, um, we really needed to be able to get involved. It's just as important in getting involved in your local community um, because it gives us wider access and allows patients greater access, particularly in areas outside of metropolitan areas across the country. Well, I'm for one glad you didn't go to med school because the changes you've made as a volunteer are impactful and I'm really glad about that. Um, 
let's talk about eye care advisors. Uh, for the audience, this is listed eye care with I-C-A-R-E advisors. Now, you started a practice cold and you had a bunch of school debt, Bob, and that drove you guys to think about this idea dealing with cold startups. So uh, Eric's kind of gotten us to this point where the two of you talked and got it ready. Briefly, Bob, describe eye care advisors and what is a cold startup? Sure. And I think it's important that I kind of, you know, tell you a little Please. bit about how we got here. Um, you know, so when I was in when I when I was in school as a student association president, I would receive letters weekly in the mail of commercial entities going and wanting to wine and dine all of our you know, fourth year students, trying to get them into commercial practice, telling them that that was the only option possible out there. And they were offering attractive salaries and benefits. And at the same time, private practitioners didn't have that marketing you know, capability. They weren't reaching out to all of us to get in front of us. They were one-off um, institutions. A lot of my classmates wanted to be in private practice. They just didn't know how. So what I decided to do is prove that it could be done, um, really. And uh, so uh, I ended up, you know, I was in undergrad at a school that, you know, was, was expensive. I had an incredible amount of student loan debt. It was the third highest in my class. And I decided, listen, I'm going to go ahead and do this. And then I'm going to teach others how you can do it, because if I can do it coming from nothing, uh, then they all can do it. And so um, went ahead and pursued uh, the passion there. And what I found is all the books that I read preparing for that really weren't sufficient to be able to prepare me for what I was really getting myself into. And there was a lot of mistakes that I made, tr tremendous amount of mistakes. And I wanted to make sure that others weren't going to repeat those. And so I would lecture around the country on how to do this. We were featured in a couple of magazines. And um, I ended up crossing paths with Eric on practice management circuits. And a lot of the same individuals that were approaching him in his position at ICO were also approaching me, wondering how they can get help after their cold start is already opened. And so at this point in time, Eric and I um, got together and decided that we really need to help these individuals uh, before they enter into these leases, before they pick a location um, and make some mistakes that are undoable. Um, so that's when we got together and decided this is time to-, to So back to the question of what's a cold startup, because I actually hear the phrase warm startup. Would you just finish that off by saying, you know, what a cold startup is? I think it might be obvious, but I'm not sure. It's Absolutely. Obvious. So, yeah, it's oh, a great sorry. question. I apologize for not answering to begin with, but uh, that's usually that's truly. usually my play. <laughs> the, the circuitous yeah, answer. Yeah. A, a, a cold start is usually uh, starting out literally in a cold, dark shell with no patients, um, no population in which is going to be able to follow. You're starting from scratch. You're not walking into an established practice or even a secondary practice or or someone that is is selling. Um, so you're literally starting from scratch. You're shaping everything from, you know, the design of the practice, the location of the practice. You're writing your own business plan. You're selecting your equipment and your frame lines, and truly starting cold. And in, by definition, that's truly what I had to do. Um, I had to start everything and read everything from scratch because there were very very little resources available to me. So Eric. Tell us about the brand you've tried to build with iCare Advisors. You have hundreds of customers. Some maybe are listening. Some maybe are listening who say, ah, I did that. It wasn't that hard. But you have really built a trusted model. What is that model about? Um, I, I mean, I think our model, you hit the nail on the head with trust first and foremost is, you know, Bob and I lead by example. And it's certainly important to us that, you know, do as I do, not as I say. Um, 
And so when we're outlining strategies for young doctors or older doctors or doctors that are going through career transitions, it's important that they understand we've been through it ourselves. We're still doing it ourselves. Bob and I still own and operate practices here in Chicago. And the model was really built upon making good decisions early. So as Bob alluded to, when this all sort of came about as an idea, we were really trying to backtrack on a lot of projects with with individuals, either had signed a bad lease, picked a poor location, went through a financing channel that was suboptimal. And we realized that in order to allow these practices to succeed, they need to get as much as they can for spending as little as they as they can. And so keeping budgets low, starting lean is what really allows them to grow with the practice rather than immediately being in survival mode and being forced to you know, cross their fingers and hope the practice catches up for all of the uh, expenditures and debt that they've committed to. And so it's every step needs to be calculated. And so we're helping from the very beginning from a demographics research perspective of determining the best location. We're simultaneously writing and providing business plans that align with the project cost, creating three-year pro formas to help uh, lay out what we expect to be the revenue and expenditures and debt service over the course of three years, working with very specific vendors as it relates to the design process and build out, which is typically going to be the lion's share of the cost, uh, with well over a third of the total project cost typically going specifically to the build out. And that's a, you know, it's an investment, no doubt, but it's still a sunk cost in the sense that you don't achieve any more revenue by paying double for your build out. Um, you need to make sure that the money that you're spending in addition is going to be towards revenue generating opportunities, whether that be equipment or marketing uh, or patient uh, patient attraction and things of that nature. And so over time, our, our program has evolved as well. And we've gotten to a point where there's really no step in the entire process from beginning to end. On average, we're with each client for probably about a year and a half. And it's full unlimited engagement with our entire team of seven individuals. So uh, you're not passed off to a single person as an administrator or a once-a-month check-in. It's not uncommon for us to have a client talk to four or five different team members in a single day, depending on what parts of the project that they're working on. And so there's definitely a trust and confidence factor, and we're leading them through every single step. And as I always tell clients when we talk to them, there is never a step in the process where you have to figure out what to do next, figure out how to navigate what that next step is going to be because it's already spelled out and defined for you. You will never have to negotiate on your own behalf. We've already done that. We've already gone out and negotiated with these vendors and we have either created the step for you, done the step for you, or are facilitating the step for you. But the most important piece of the puzzle above all is it's still their practice at the end of the day. It's their brand. It's their fingerprints. They need to be the ones holding the reins and they need to understand we're going to make the process easier. We're going to make it less stressful. We're going to make it more cost effective, but we don't own your practice. It's your practice at the end of the day. And it's important that they understand that from the beginning as well. Bob, what I hear there is this high degree of specificity in the process. I mean, like no stones left unturned and nothing's left to chance. And I, I know we've all at times been optometric consultants and none of us are here to bash our colleagues that are consultants. 
But I know that you felt that it's sort of a less than ideal world in the general consulting world. So am I right to read that the specificity is a big differentiator or is it is it just this all-time access or is it both? And Scott, you know, I, I was kind of shocked when we got into it um, in the beginning. And Eric and I were going to a lot of uh, different shows all across the country. And we had a lot of clients that needed certain services. And, you know, we got to learn that by bringing a whole table full of clients or accounting for a significant amount of business at one particular show, based on the amount of clients we were bringing to their table, um, they automatically offered up to send us checks in return for bringing them business. And we're like, wait a minute, we just negotiated. Well, now I know you can go lower. I said, because it's a dirty business. I, I had no idea how dirty it was and how many kickbacks are being taken. So Eric and I don't take any kickbacks from any vendors. It's we want the best deal for our clients. And if we're going to find a better deal, we're going to pivot. It's really that simple. And COVID has taught us a lot. A lot of the equipment vendors have really um, raced to the bottom in terms of trying to give great quality products away for lower prices. And so everything is evolving. We're evaluating everything based on the ROI for their practice and their mission. We wanna make sure that they're getting equipment that they need to complete their mission, but we also wanna show them the ROI and how many times they have to perform that individual procedure or use that piece of diagnostic equipment in order to be able to be profitable. Because some of the real difficult cases that we've seen has been those that have been open cold for maybe a year and want help, but they already have every single toy and bell and whistle in their office and they're drowning in debt and there's just no ROI. So everything is very specific, all the way down to the piece of equipment that they need or finance company that we need to develop a step program so that they're able to follow that as their practice grows. But we wanted to be different. We want to be industry disruptors. And uh, I think, you know, that's that's created a lot of confidence in us from our clients. I could tell everybody who's listening that that's a fact, right? Because there was a day I was your vendor and we went through the process of discussing what it was like. And you knew us to be a company that wasn't involved in kickbacks, right? It was, we're going to earn the business. And I don't know the details of the things you've seen in that way. And again, we're, we're not here to cast dispersions on our industry, but these observations are concerning. I know it happens in places like investment banking too, you know, where oftentimes people will serve up businesses that are for sale to the same buyer over and over again. The seller never really gets the great price because the person who keeps bringing those businesses to the to the buyer has been told by the buyer, I'll give you a little kick every time. So I'm just really glad you're talking about it in a forthright way. And I think it should illuminate this for those who have listened to this. Now, I want to hear each of you give me a sense of from these couple hundred cold start practices you've helped start from that very sort of dark box in, in, a, in a building. What gives you the greatest pride? What's an example when you look at your alumni that you served? Um, I would say for me is the feedback that we get from those individuals. I mean, certainly there's confidence in referrals. And so, you know, one thing that Bob and I are, are also you know proud of is we, we've effectively gotten to this point purely through organic channels of marketing only. So we're not paying for marketing to get our names out there. Uh, we're not having to do specific sponsorships so that our name appears on a banner or a billboard. We we feel that most of our organic marketing has been through partnerships of providing good content for people, whether it was through new grad optometry or covalent careers, discussion platforms like this, I think are, are help, instill, help instill the confidence in our clients. 
And when we just get, you know, cold call inquiries that say, hey, I heard from my friend so-and-so that had a really great experience that you guys are the ones to go to to help guide me through this process. I never would have even considered doing this. And after seeing them and seeing how excited they are and knowing what how great you guys were to work with, I want to work with you as well. And so, you know, there's, as they say, there's no better compliment than a referral. I think that's absolutely true. And just seeing how well our clients are doing, when they get to those points where the flexibility of life opens up and they're able to take those first vacations, which don't happen in the first six months, we don't, that's the other thing, we don't sugarcoat with our clients to say, open your own, you know, as I always say to people, we are never in the business of trying to convince someone to cold start a practice, nor would we ever. Our goal is to lay out the facts, help them understand the true magnitude of the process, and make sure that it's the right career path for them. And I, I teach the same way at ICO is the goal is to have you not have to bounce around within your career, but have the tools and resources and understand the dynamics of buying a practice or opening a practice or being an associate or corporate optometry. And just the, those simple feedback, sometimes even it's just a, a one, one, we had a client just this past week send a, a, a one sentence email and it said, you know, I've, I've finally been able to come up for air and I just want to drop you guys a line and say, thank you so much for everything that you've done. And those are the types of things that make it all worth it for us and keep us motivated and engaged to keep doing it moving forward. Bob, any other prideful thoughts? Uh, it's a lot of fun. I mean, a lot of our clients talk about it as a family. Um, you know, we do kind of consider, you know, these kind of members of our eye care family and it's fun to get Christmas cards and updates and see how their family is growing. You can't believe the number of practices um, that we've helped cold start where the individual practice owner is actually pregnant. I mean, these are unbelievable people. I mean, these women are amazing. They're having children while they're opening up their cold starts and they continue to do so and thrive and they work incredibly hard. And so there's a lot of just cool stories where they just keep us updated on how things are going years down the road and knowing that they're putting on an addition to their house or sending pictures of the new basketball court they put in the basement for their kids. It's kind of, it's pretty yeah. cool. It's yeah. a really wonderful story and I'm really thrilled to be able to help you tell it. I want to ask you each a question of learnings from this. Uh, let's give you this one, Eric. Um, your clients should, you know, find financing to be fairly easy. It's not always easy. Can it be through your work or is it a pipe dream to think that it is easy? Um, I don't know if easy is the right term. Uh, attainable is definitely the, the uh, probably better way to, to, to frame it. And the reality is, is there, there are lenders out there and Wells Fargo has been a great partner of ours through Cold Start Optometry. They have a very specific program that is formulated for cold start practices. And they, they actually do optometry, dentistry, uh, veterinary, and medicine. And so they expect that there's going to be student loan debt. They expect that you know people aren't going to come out with these high net worth. They expect that people are gonna be working six days a week. And so it, it definitely helps provide uh, a, a very good basis and foundation. I mean, you need you, in most cases, you need the funding in order to, uh, you know, go through the project and to open the practice in the first place. I mean, it truly is the step that allows all others to be possible. And we just, what we do is we go through and create these business plans and pro formas and create, create a story for each project um, that has instilled, I think, a lot of confidence 
in eye care advisors to where when we work with Wells Fargo or other lenders to say, all right, they're working with eye care. We know they're in good hands. We know they're not going to overspend. We know they're not going to come back and ask for you know more money over and over. And we know that they're going to be responsible throughout the project. And so we've definitely built a, a great relationship with them over time. But just the industry in and of itself has 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 slowly continued to become more and more favorable. I mean, we're we're seeing interest rates in the four percent right now on cold start loans with zero percent down, literally one hundred percent finance loans on graduated repayment scales with no payments until you're open for business. And those are the running starts that these doctors need in order to maximize their cash flow, have a good amount of working capital on hand the day they open their doors so that they're in a position where they're not going to have, you know, 15 patients on their first day of patient care. We need to have a model put into place where they can get through those first few months so that they can be on their on their path to growth and success. And to clarify, they can do this. It's attainable despite these somewhat astronomical student debts. Absolutely. So the most interesting thing that, that we've learned through the process is it all comes down to what they call the cash flow ratio, where they are far more interested in how much money's coming in per month versus what your expenses are on a monthly basis. So it doesn't really count against you whether you... They, I say they don't care, which is probably not the right way to frame it. But the reality is, if you are you are not uh, there. There's no no negativity to having two fifty in loans, two hundred fifty thousand. That is, of course, uh, compared to one fifty. They are more interested in is your minimum payment due a thousand dollars a month or is it two thousand dollars a month? So one of the common conventions that is actually uh, incorrect in the in the realm of financing is. Even if you're doing the responsible thing and you're on a 15-year repayment, for example, and, and you're being financially responsible by accelerating your repayment, that will actually reflect negatively. You'd be in a better position to be on a 30-year repayment, paying half that amount. They're more concerned with what the minimum due is. Same thing if you own a home. It doesn't matter to them if, if it's a half a million dollar house or a $250,000 house. They want to know is the minimum mortgage payment. $900 a month or is it $3,500 a month? So it's all about monthly expenses and monthly income is what they're most in interested in. And certainly credit scores and those things uh, come into play as well. Uh, and so many, so many lessons there for the doctor that's in practice, thinking about practice transition, uh, in other words, you know, like remodels and new equipment. Uh, Bob, you guys have learned a lot about how success is made, but you've also seen some of the main causes of failure. Can you give a sense, both at the cold startup and at the general level, where doctors should be thinking about where their biggest potential pitfalls are? Well, fortunately, we, we, we haven't seen any failures uh, with eye care advisors, which is, which is great. Um, but from looking at outside individuals that we've been asked to come and consult with, uh, by far, the number one thing is going to be the amount of debt that they have. Um, they're taking out way too much money, and their note is just so large that they have this piece of equipment that's just not able to be utilized to its full capacity. And unfortunately, they can't dig themselves out of that hole. They're actually using the working capital um, to pay down you know, the debt that they have. They're using the loan to pay the loan. It becomes very, very difficult for them to do that. And what we try to do is offer an approach that we want as many people in the chair as we possibly can get. Um, we want access to warm bodies in the chair. We have zero 
individuals in there. So we need access to them so we can get access to their family and their friends. And we do everything down to the penny from third party insurances, uh, you name it, to get every single advantage we can get out of these plans to become profitable. Um, I'm in the exam chair as well. These things affect me every day. Anytime something changes with BSB or IMED or something changes in the industry, it affects my practice. And so we're able to give that advice and offer it up as soon as we can. It, same thing with COVID. I mean, that was a challenging time for everybody. And we were living it. We were living through PPP. You know, we were living through all these difficulties in um, being able to obtain financing, what the rules are. So we were constantly keeping our clients updated on on what was happening there because that began became a cash flow problem. And so it all does always come back down to the almighty dollar. And with so much going on that's affecting the independence of practice, uh, particularly private equity backed consolidation, Bob, what's the future of independent practice? Is it strong? Is it questionable? What's your point of view there? I'll actually take this one, Scott. I think <laughs> oh, it's, I, See, there you go. You, I'm, am, I'm amazed we made it this far. <laughs> Simmer down over there, Bob. Yeah. Um, you know, this is actually this was a this was a, a lecture topic that I gave at ICO for homecoming a couple of a couple of years back. And it, it was very interesting because the the audience was alums, but there were also students in the audience as well. And and what we found and actually lectured to the ICO residents last Friday and also talked about this topic. And what's interesting is one, the number of individuals who don't even know what private equity is and haven't even heard of it. And uh, and those that have are affected by it in so many different ways. Either they're on the associate side or they were at a practice that was, you know, they're at Johnson Family Optometry and it gets bought out by private equity and suddenly they're asked to sign a new contract and it's far more restrictive, significantly a larger non-competes and so forth. And Really, what we've seen the overall dynamic, if it, just to answer it in general, and by all means, happy to get specific as, as you'd like, is almost everything that's happening with private equity really is swinging into the favor of private practice optometry. Um, on, the, on the surface, it certainly did not seem that way initially while they're swallowing all of these practices up. But what we're seeing is not a, a couple of things. One is they're coming in and they're picking off the strongest competitors, first and foremost. So they're going after the biggest practices. They're going after the most established practices. They're oftentimes going after the oldest practices in a given area. And as soon as they come in, at least for the vast majority of models, they're immediately, we think, diluting the brand and commercializing that practice. So they're changing the name in many cases. And so patients begin to identify it the same way that they do a Pearl Vision or a Lens Crafters or something that has national brand recognition or at least regional brand recognition. Um, the doctor overnight, all of us have owned practices here. We know what it feels like that all of us have owned and sold portions of practices here. We all know how your mentality shifts the day after you sell that practice. It is never the same again. And when you don't have owner mentality, and now you have a doctor who they're just counting down the days. They're three years until they're done or they're five years until they're done. They got their payout and they're ready to leave. That affects the staff. The staff's been loyal to Dr. Johnson for the last 25 years and now they're no longer. So you see a lot of staff attrition. You also see patient attrition because their experience starts to change. And then the other piece of the model is the, you know, on the cost of goods side and the, what you're offering for product 
that tends to change as well. And so we actually open a lot of our cold starts in areas. It's a favorable thing for us when we're looking in a, in a certain area and we find out that a practice has just sold a private equity. We no longer are nearly as concerned about getting as close to that practice as we might have been before. And I, I think the, the big question mark all of us continue to ask is, how does this all end? And then when you look at private equity models, pharmacy aside, perhaps, but pretty much all other private equity models, you look back to medicine back in the 90s and 2000s, pretty much the last entity holding the bag is the one that gets royally screwed because you just continue to elevate the value of these practices. I think they're artificially elevated when you group five together, 10 together, 20 together. These private equities are, are not intending to hold these for a lifetime. They're planning to hold them for three to five years and flip to the next bidder. And the price just goes up and up and up. Well, at the end of the day, these practices still have to produce the revenues and they've just set the goal so high. And so what we think in many cases is that we're going to start to see some of these over time implode to where private practice is going to be the last one standing. And from a model perspective, in terms of the eyes of a consumer, we think their model more aligns with commercial optometry to where they're going to compete each other out of the space. And the last one standing will, will be the, the private practices that are still offering those patients that see value in knowing their optometrist, feeling like they're a part of the process, and continue to seek those uh, types of practices out. Bob, the senator has yielded his time back to you. Eric is far more eloquent than I am, and uh, I have right. uh, nothing to add, sir. I, I so guess I would ask you there. this. Do you have a word for those that choose to go through that process about their importance of still participating in organized optometry? Absolutely. You know, and I think a lot of these individuals um, really do want to leave a legacy. And there's a legacy that can be left there, you know, through political action. You know, fortunately, those that are, you know, selling out to private equity, there's a lot of good reasons why they're doing it and financial security for their family. But they do come with large payouts. And the one thing I always tell people when I'm trying to get them to be politically active is, you know, not everyone is meant to be face to face with a senator or a member of the House of Representatives. I said, but one thing that always helps us is cash. And so for those individuals that are receiving large payouts that want to leave a legacy to help those maybe that are underrepresented uh, in optometry, um, we certainly have a, a diversity issue um, at the student level. Um, but we also need representation, you know, at the state level to be able to advance the profession further and make it better for those that uh, are going to come after us. So I would just ask those that are, are planning on getting a buyout, if they could reserve a portion to help out and advance the profession that allowed them to be able to sell their practice for that large. Well, level. from a business perspective, I have incredible respect for what you built and I congratulate you on it. I want to get back to you guys as humans before we're finished. Bob, you spend a ton of time with your kids and your family. What's your schedule like nowadays? It's insanity. Uh, I, I, you know, it's we, we don't stop working. It's uh, that that's that's my mom's fault. I, you know, she she taught us, you know, how to work so hard uh, at everything. The only the only person I, I will never be able to outwork in my life is my mother. I, it's it's impossible. So I always feel I'm striving to kind of hit that goal, it's never going to happen. But, you know, we're answering text messages, you know, at two in the morning or emails at 5 a.m. And, you know, our clients, a lot of them are millennials and they expect responses very quickly. And um, we try to deliver on that. 
Um, but it's important to me at this stage in my life, uh, time is worth so much more to me than money. And spending time with my kids and being able to, to coach their baseball teams and be able to attend their school functions and to go to sporting events and, and teach them how to you know, play golf and, and things like that. It's, uh, it's tremendously rewarding. And, you know, I, I think that's part of the reason why all of our clients, you know, do this and each of them have their own passions and whatever their passion is, this is going to allow them to achieve it, whether it's more time with their family or, or whether it's wealth and, and we're, we're available um, to be able to kind of turn to pivot to either one of those, because really the goal is the same and that's, that's happiness. So I can say, even though we're constantly stressed and Eric works, eight days a week where I only work seven. Um, but, uh, you know, I, it's just one of those things where, you know, it's what makes you happy. And right now, uh, this has been an incredibly rewarding experience. You get to touch a lot of lives by doing it. Yeah, it's a doing. great story so, about how, how optometrists can find different ways to what their goal is. And, and Eric, you're a very active person. You love tennis. You, you mentioned the story of mentoring a young person and how meaningful that's been to you. Tell us about that as you finish up. Yeah, definitely. Um, it, talking about work-life balance, you know, funny, just last night, Bob and I were on a call with a client and uh, he's he's become a practice owner and he is trying to figure out the balance of his schedule. And, and he said, so how many how many days a week do you guys work? What's your schedule? <laughs> and Bob Eight goes, seven. <laughs> and Bob goes, uh, seven. And, and Eric works eight. Um, but no, I mean, you know, that's something, something that was instilled in me at a very young age. I can actually think back even when I was in junior high school and I was in eighth grade was uh, the first time that I started doing mentoring or tutoring on some level. Um, I did it in college with autistic children. And then when I got to optometry school, I actually helped start a program uh, at the local Pilgrim Baptist Church. We did an after school mentoring program and we set up tutoring programs as part of the work study um, initiative through ICO at two of the local elementary schools. And it was something that I was always passionate about. It was something that never felt like work for me. And, and it was a way that I, I definitely wanted to give back my time. And admittedly, when I started opening my first practice and was working six, seven days a week, I fell out of tutoring and mentoring for probably a good solid five years, just because it was so, you know, in the world of mentoring, the one thing you can never do is be the next person that gives up on them or isn't there when you say you're going to be there. And I, I just couldn't commit the time. And so as soon as I had the opportunity to get back in, I was lucky enough to get in at a college prep school on a college prep high school on the west side of Chicago, where I met my mentee Terrence. He was 16 years old, comes from impossible circumstances. And, you know, just see, I mean, Bob, Bob knows his backstory very well. And and knows a lot about him, and you know, I, I get emotional every time I talk about it. But he's he's become a family member to me, and he's currently uh, a junior in nursing school at Michigan State University, and has you know effectively become a son. And just every day, in awe of where he's come from, the impossible circumstances he's overcame, and you know, there's there's many a days where I think he's my mentor because there's you know he he checks in on me, and he knows that. We're doing this interview today and without fail, we did a Zoom call with my family last night and without fail, he'll check in this evening. Hey, Eric, how'd your, how'd your call go? And so it's really cool to see. It's a, it, it's a great way to you know, spend your time and, and give back and, and try to be as impactful as possible to the next person that inevitably is going to carry the torch and, and, and do something great for others. 
Well, Eric, Bob, I'm so proud of what you've done. And I'm so glad the profession is in the hands of people like you and the drive you have not only for the business of optometry, but for the people around you is inspiring. So thanks so much for sharing your stories. Thank you, Scott. And to my thanks audience, so much, I hope you've enjoyed. Thanks for attending or listening. And until my next Sandbox story, be great at all you do.